I am so excited, though. I get to talk about this important subject from God's Word. And as we continue our series through the book of Galatians, uh, and it's a subject that evokes a lot of emotions. Whenever we talk about something that's potentially divisive about the subject of women and leadership ministry in the church, it's uh, important for us to remember what Paul says a couple of chapters later when he says that the big deal is that we serve one another in love, that the entire law is summed up in the single command, love your neighbor as yourself. And so while today, while I'm going to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach today. You usually hear me give talks. I'm, I, I'm so, you know, into this. I'll probably preach today. But you'll also hear that that is in a spirit of love as well. We understand that there's a lot of different places to land. But isn't, can I just ask this question, isn't it a special treat today that another old white male is talking about women? Isn't that, isn't that really the treat today? I, I understand. Let's just get that out of the way as we jump in together. Here at Evergreen, we're very clear about three things. The first is that the Scripture, God's Word, is our foundation for belief and life. We believe that God gave His wonderful revelation across millennia through multiple authors in 66 books in a variety of literary forms in the context of different cultures and settings dealing with human beings and their issues in life, all telling one grand story. This is the foundation of life and belief for us. The second thing that we affirm is that the big idea in Scripture is loving God with all we've got and loving others as ourselves. The Spirit is one of love. The foundation is Scripture. The Spirit is of love. And the third thing we believe is we better stink and know what we believe and have convictions about that. Paul talks in Romans chapter 14 about some matters that might be disputable matters. But he says in that context, you need to know what you believe. You need to have convictions about it because whatever is not of faith is sin. So if I talk with a little bit of conviction today, I've just justified that, haven't I? Go, Jared. That's right. I get to talk. Foundation of Scripture, spirit of love, and having convictions. This is so important for us. It's our conviction that Jesus redeems and restores God's creative order, and that being a oneness relationship with God through Christ and a oneness relationship together in God's family. And that oneness includes an equality regarding race, race, ethnicity, social status, and gender. In the issues of the Bible, as we make it our foundation, the issues of ethnic inclusion and economic status and and a class and women in ministry leadership are not exceptions to that value. In fact, we believe that the Word of God requires us to include everyone, including women as equal partners in ministry to men. So our position is a matter of obedience, not cultural convenience or inconvenience but obedience. Let's take a look at our text today, and I'm going to read the four verses at the end of Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29, and this is what it says. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. 
If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. As we've discovered in this journey through Galatians, Acts was dismayed, uh, Paul was dismayed that certain self-imposed, self-authoritative leaders were beginning to talk to these churches and try to add something in addition to the pure gospel of Christ. And part of what they were bringing was not only Old Testament legal understanding, but Old Testament cultural context as well, which included the norm of slavery, the demeaning of human beings as slaves of others, and the norm within not only Old Testament Jewish culture, but in most other prevailing cultures of the world, where women were treated as property, rarely left the homes of their fathers or their husbands, were under the authority of those men in their lives, and had very little authority and decision-making opportunity on their own. Into this context, Paul writes and affirms this oneness relationship that we enjoy with God. Notice in verse 26, he says, you're all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. He's talking about legal inheritance. And in that culture, it was men who received inheritance from their fathers. And so he says to us, we're all sons in Christ. How is that so? That Jesus, God's son, the legal heir to all of the authority, all of the resource, all of the power... All of the inheritance of God legally in Jesus Christ. He then says, for those of us who have found our way through forgiveness into Christ, you now are one with Christ. The next verse, he talks about baptism. As Jamie was baptized, completely plunged underwater, coming back completely wet with water. So the image of completely pushed into Jesus and completely being the, quote, clothed in Christ so that all of what was available to Jesus as the legitimate heir to God the Father is now shared with all of us, sons, men and women, in a legal sense, heirs of all that God has to give. And to make it unmistakably clear about who Paul was referring to in the plural pronoun you, he begins to mention specific categories of people. And by doing so, he shattered, he must have threatened, it must have been shocking for him to designate these three categories of people that certainly culturally were not considered to be one and certainly not equal. He said as it relates to Jew and Gentile, as we become one in Christ, that is a meaningless cultural distinction as it relates to receiving from God, as it relates to social status and class. That is a meaningless distinction in Christ as it relates to men and women, male and female. That is a meaningless distinction in Christ in terms of the legal right to inherit and receive everything that Jesus has for us. And so we believe that gender distinctions do not limit a person's spiritual capacity. Joined to Christ, all inherit everything that he's inherited clothed in his righteousness, all are equipped with his authority. And gender does not determine the ministry capacity that people can receive from God. Now, I talk loud and enthusiastically and use my hands a lot. That's called preaching. Until I have some feelings about this. It just kind of dawned on you. Have you noticed that there are some people that hold a different opinion about that? You've heard of some of those, right? How is it 
that people who are well-meaning, well-intended, love God with all their heart, affirm everything we said about God's word. It's our foundation. It's the truth. We just, if God said it, I believe it. And if I believe it, I do it. Can end up with such differences of opinion about a variety of issues, including marriage, divorce, and remarriage, for example. In this case, including what is the place of men and women in leadership ministry within the church? How can it be that we end up with such different places of understanding? Well, it comes to this beautiful world. It just rolls off my tongue. Hermeneutics. Isn't that a beautiful word? You can say it if you want. It's just hermeneutics. Such a fun word. No, it's one of those, you know, stuffy theologian kinds of words. Friday, Ann and I and some of our family got to have lunch with her brother and sister-in-law, Joe and Lena Whitwer. <clears throat> and I reminded Joe <clears throat> that uh, uh, 30 years ago, he wrote an article that was published about hermeneutics and that he titled it Herman Who? Great title. And he was shocked and he said, I don't remember writing that. Where was it published? And I told him and he said, well, what did I say? And I said, I have no idea and it probably wasn't that good. But the title was excellent, and I remember that. Herman who? So it's Herman's fault that we get ourselves into all this mess in the church? Yes, it's Herman's fault. This is how Herman enters the picture. Hermeneutics is how we interpret Scripture. It's how we approach it in a way, the lenses through which we view it, that helps lead us toward different conclusions. My father left school formally after the eighth grade, but he was a wise, godly man, and often led, if not certainly participated, in the conversations that our family had on our way home from church. And we usually talked on our 30-minute drive home about the message because the worship music part of our service hadn't changed for 50 or 80 years. So there was really nothing new to talk about there. So we could talk about the message. And uh, I remember one time we were talking about coming to conclusions. My dad told this joke. You know, it's kind of old, and it's, it's kind of funny. He said, you know, there was a guy one time and he really wanted to know what God's will was and he wasn't hearing God speak to him and he was confused. And so he said, God, I'm just going to flip through the pages of scripture here and I'm just going to point to a place and I'm going to read it and that's your will for me. And he pointed and he happened to flip to Matthew chapter 27, verse 5, where it says, Judas went out and hanged himself. Well, the guy wasn't sure that that was the entire word of God to him at the moment. And so he said, one more time, one more time, God. And he moved over a little bit and flipped around and pointed and said, go and do likewise. Corny little joke. Except that's exactly how some of the corny ideas end up coming up sometimes with what we believe about Scripture. And then these folks will just say to you as they thump their Bible, it says so right here. That's what it says. Judas went out and hanged himself, and you should go do likewise. Well, we don't want to demean people, and we certainly honor God's Word, but we make the point that the way we approach it makes all the difference. I say to this often with people who want to kind of argue with me about theological and doctrinal stuff, which, by the way, I don't particularly enjoy all that much. But I often ask them, tell me where you're starting. Because where someone starts generally determines where they end. 
I'm going to invite you to do something fun. In fact, each of you just need to have one of these half-sheet outlines today. If you don't, ushers have them. If you'd lift your hand right now, I want everyone to get to benefit from one. Lift your hand. They're coming around right now. If you don't have a pen or a pencil, they're coming down for you. Keep your hands up until you get one. There's probably a pen in the seat uh, pocket in the chair that's right in front of you. We have on the front side of the page... 15 mandates that come from the New Testament. One from Jesus himself, most of the rest of them from Paul. And I'm asking you to check the boxes of those which you always do or you believe that others should obey. For example, if you're not in that social condition, if you're not a woman and it talks about women, for example, I can't do that, but I think all women should. You get the point here. For example, wash one another's feet. Don't go metaphorical on me here. Jesus got naked, put a towel around him, had a basin of water, washed the guy's feet, wiped their feet, and then say, you wash one another's feet. That's what he said. I understand that. I grew up in a tradition that did that. That was a regular part of our annual calendar and liturgy. Because if Jesus said wash feet in the same context that he did communion, why would you do communion and not foot washing? You get what I mean here? This is the literal expression of what people are told to do. You check the number of boxes that you currently believe you should do and do or that other people do. I'll give you one minute to do it. Add the number of checks that you have, and then we're going to do a little survey. Okay. Wrapping it up all right. Getting your number. Everybody needs to have a number. So this is what we're going to do in just a moment. Don't do anything yet, but just a moment. You're going to have your number. And I'm going to ask everyone who has at least one box checked to raise your hand. And then I'm going to... Not yet, not yet. Just giving you the plan here. And then I'm going to ask everyone who has their hand up to keep your hand up until I mention the number of boxes that you don't have checked. So if you have four checked... You'll keep your hand up until I say five, and then your hand will go down. And I have done this, not on the basis of my current experience, because I wouldn't have so many checked, but I have gone through from the tradition that I grew up in, and I'm going to keep my hand up until I finish that number of boxes, and we're going to see if I was more biblical than you, okay? You ready for this? Here we go. Okay? You had one box or more. Hands up. Strong and broad. Okay. Two boxes. Three boxes. Four boxes. Oh, we're down to the Marines now. Five boxes. One, two, three. Six boxes. Four, Seven boxes. Eight boxes. Nine boxes. Ten boxes. <laughs> Teresa's the last woman standing and... She, She's standing because she knows how many boxes I had checked, and she's going to beat me this time. Okay. So did, did you wash his feet last night? That's it. What, did you, you, you didn't have that many last night. There we go. Well, I had nine boxes in my experience, and uh, that was more than one. So what's the point that we're making here? Don't we all believe God's word? Then why don't you do it? Because we understand that it's not pointing to a verse, is it? It's bringing Herman to the mix, and asking the question, how do we understand the beauty of God's Word in a way that really helps us with what He's saying eternally that's true and applying to our lives as well? So we want to be very honest in how we approach Scripture. Imagine a camera with me. How many of you are 
are camera people, and you're pretty good photographers. It's, it's maybe a hobby or an avocation, several of you. And you may have a camera that actually comes apart, not like mine, when I break, fall, you know, they fall and they break apart, but actually has lenses on it. And I don't know much about this, but from what I understand, if you have something that's a distance away and you want to really focus on it, you put a special lens on the camera. And what's that lens called? Telescopic. Really have trouble with that word. You may need to help with it. Telescopic lens. It focuses in on something and it makes that something beautiful and brilliant and vivid and detailed. A telescopic lens. Let's imagine that we go to the Grand Canyon. And the majesty of the Grand Canyon that you want to share with others really needs to be as panoramic as possible in that photograph. What kind of a lens would you put on the camera? A wide-angle lens. Now, which is true? The picture of the panorama or the picture taken of the little flower across the canyon which is growing out of a tiny crack and is absolutely brilliant and vivid? Which is true? They're both true. But doesn't it make all the difference in the meaning of that depending upon which lens you used to start with? And so we're forthright about the lens that we start with. Herman is called starting with beginnings for us. It's a way that we generally approach Scripture. And on the backside of your handout today, you'll notice that there is a timeline as we talk about starting with beginnings. And on that timeline, there are three fast-forward symbols, each of them over three distinct beginning periods, the beginning with creation, the beginning of Jesus' life, and the beginning of the church. And we start with those beginnings. In the beginning of creation, in Genesis chapter 1, both male and female were endowed with dominion. Both were obligated to exercise their God-given responsibility and leadership within God's plan. When God there in the beginning, God among himself, Israel's favorite pronouncement was, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is how many? One. In God's oneness, he says among himself in plural, Let us make man in our own image. Male and female, he created him. God absolutely one expressing his image in humankind, expressed his image in a oneness that was male and female. In fact, the oneness of the first couple was so obvious that they had a singular name. The name was Adam. But we know what happened then in chapter 3. Sin entered the scene. And when sin entered, by definition, sin separates. The immediate separation was between the oneness of the male and the female. They discovered for the first time that they were separate from each other and they sowed fig leaves to hide themselves from each other. There's only two people on the planet. They're only representing the distance between the two of them. Then they both both run to the trees to hide from whom? God, indicating the separation that they experienced from God. And then God came and pronounced judgment. And there was a separation from them from his perfect and beautiful creation as they were excluded from the garden. 
And there were curses that were set in motion of sin because the result of sin is always death. And those curses had to do with what would happen to the serpent and what would happen to the woman and what would happen to the man. And part of what would happen to the woman and the man was that the internal now tension that would come among them because of the separation that had occurred would be that there would be a tension within their relationships that would have to be managed in some kind of order. It was a part of Genesis chapter 3. And it's in that context of sin that Adam looks at his counterpart, the female, and gives her her own identity and calls her Eve. That's the story in the beginning. So when we talk about the rest of the Bible, it is a story of two big ideas, both of them in English, starting with the letter R. It is first the story of redemption, and secondly, the story of restoration. The redemption of Jesus' gift for us on the cross of coming to pay the price of our sin so that in repentance and accepting his forgiveness by faith, demonstrating that physically, as Jamie did in water baptism, that we fully identify with what Jesus did for us and we become clothed with Christ, one with him. That's redemption. And that's why you can go home today feeling certain in Christ that whether he comes and returns in your lifetime for his church or whether you die, you will go to be with him. You are in Christ Jesus. That's where the Father says about him and now you. You are family. You are loved. You are pleasing. That's redemption. The second part of the Bible story is restoration, to restore us back to his original creative intent. For those of you that are Bible reader throughs, you'll notice that in the first and second chapter of Genesis, it talks about a tree of life. There's another place in the Bible that you read about it. Revelation chapter 22, the tree of life is restored. The Bible from chapter 1 to chapter 22 at the other end is a story of redemption, bringing people back into order with God, with one another, and with God's created order. That's why when Jesus was asked, Lord, teach us to pray, he said, pray this way, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we start with this place of beginnings and understand that not only does God's redemptive grace break the power and the poison of sin in our lives, but it also begins to reverse the process of degeneration that has brought into our lives the kind of brokenness and disharmony pictured on the wall in front of us. And that the Holy Spirit's work is to renew us and restore us and heal us in ways that bring order internally for us into the likeness and image of Christ. And as we become whole people to restore our relationships among one another into that oneness as well. And Paul then uses in this context of theology about redemption and restoration, he illustrates the point with three distinct groups of people and says this includes now the lack of differentiation of oneness in Christ among people of ethnic or cultural or social status or gender distinctions. That's the beginning. So that's where we start. You can imagine that if we started someplace else in the Bible, that we might end up at a different place. 
but we start at the beginnings. It's our hermeneutic principle. So the second big beginning in Scripture then is in uh, the story of Jesus' birth, the Christmas story. And particularly in the youth, uh, Luke passage, it's interesting that there are six adults that are primary characters in the story. And those adults were two couples, a couple that was engaged and then married, Mary and Joseph, a couple that had been married, Zachariah and Elizabeth, and then a woman named Anna who had been married for seven years and then had been widowed most of her life, an 84-year-old aged woman, and a man named Simeon who also was older. We really have no idea of his marital status at any point. What we do know is these people that God sovereignly brought in to be principles into the birth of Jesus, the beginning of the new advent, included engaged people, married people, widowed people, single people, young people, and old people as he launched the birth of his son Jesus. What a beautiful context. And that beginning of the second advent of Jesus coming then is a precursor for us of the birth of the church, which is the third place of beginnings that we look at. In fact, the text is there on your outline as Peter stands and tries to help make sense of what is going on on the birthday of the church, this day of Pentecost, a Jewish celebration, hundreds, uh, tens of thousands of people flooding into Jerusalem, coming with different primary languages. The Holy Spirit comes upon people. There's the sound of a wind. There's the visual uh, experience of seeing tongues of fire over people's head. These people are now enabled to speak in languages that they hadn't learned on their own. Those languages are heard by these pilgrims that have come from various nations and languages of origin. And it's confusing about what does this mean? And as Peter stands to make sense of it all, the result of which 3,000 people commit their lives as followers of Christ, is he quotes from Joel chapter 2. And we have two of the verses of that quote in Acts 2, verses 17 and 18. In the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Now, this passage for us is foundational, biblical grounds for our position on how women and men are given equal place in leadership ministry. These verses clearly indicate that the issue of gender was removed as heaven's protocols now superseded human traditions and cultural experiences to maximize the release of ministry that would be available to all and through all. That the Spirit now anointed in the same way, men and women, gave them the same enablement, gave them both the authority and power to speak to the generation in which they were. The Holy Spirit pouring out on young and old, on men and women, on that day of Pentecost, is the beginning of the church and forms this foundation. There is a brief uh, reference in the video about uh, the uh, larger community of churches that we are happily uh, associated with, the Foursquare Church, about 50,000 churches uh, across the country, started in 1923. And I read this statement because it not only describes well what we believe, but also describes on behalf of our sister churches this same uh, belief in common. I quote, Anyone called by God and verified through character, spiritual experience, and preparation for service or leadership 
is qualified for ministry in any role or office, regardless of gender, age, or race, end quote. Well, so what about that other stuff Paul said? What about that? Paul's admonition to women to, quote, keep silent in the churches, end quote, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and, quote, not to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet in 1 Timothy chapter 2. We'll unpack in a moment. But we're not a refusal to acknowledge a woman's spiritual potential, but we're a pastoral solution to specific problems being faced by that particular congregation and way. In fact, we understand that the starting point often determines the ending point. And there has been a variety of opinions about this matter over the years. And some of the good church fathers uh, were reflected in their beliefs and quotes. And some of you groaned, some of you chuckled, and some of you wanted to throw rocks. Some of you might have said, preach it, brother. That's right on. The opinions about women's roles in the church have frankly not changed much. There has always been significant difference of opinion. To illustrate that point, I just want to read one partial quote. It was written three years ago. Written in a book published by a leading, very influential evangelical pastor here in the Northwest. And the only thing I've done to change the quote was to remove some language that's too coarse and inappropriate to share in this setting. So if anything, I'm softening the tone and the language by removing uh, some phrases. This is his quote. Three, um, without blushing, Paul is simply stating that when it comes to leading in the church, women are unfit because they are more gullible and easier to deceive than men. While many, it may irritate women, and many have disagreed with this assessment over the years, it appears from this that such women who fail to uh, trust his instruction and follow his teaching are much like their mother Eve well-intentioned but ill-informed. And before you get all emotional about this like a woman, (laughs) ask yourself if this doesn't look like the serpent is still trolling the garden and that the daughters of Eve still aren't gullible in pronouncing progress, liberation, and equality. End quote. If I mentioned his name, many of you would know his name. Leading influential evangelical pastor. Now, how can this man who loves God, is a student of Scripture, and has tremendous influence, has helped many people come to know Jesus, how can he end up with what appears not only to be a conclusion, but with an attitude that might be something significantly different than mine? By the way, that just flat ticks me off, just evokes emotion in me. But the question in love, because the Spirit is love, the question in love is, how could we end up at such different places? Well, are you going to start with a panoramic view with a wide-angle lens and start at beginnings? If you start at the beginnings, you'll very likely come to a conclusion that's predictable. God wants to restore the beginnings. If you start with a tele... What's that word? A telescopic lens, you're very likely going to end up at a different conclusion. Your starting point will determine your ending point. 
So let's wrap our time by taking a look at a couple of the questions that are there on the bottom of your outline. The point of the message today is not to, to do a whole series on the subject, but you can already tell that I'd like to, and I could, but just to deal with a couple of the most problematic passages that come up. And as you talk with some of your friends and they hear that women at Evergreen are fully expected, invited, and encouraged and engaged in leadership at every level, they might bring a verse out and say, what about? We're not giving you ammunition to argue. We're just wanting to clarify our understanding of what this looks like. So let's take a look at this first question. You'll notice it there on your outline. Did Paul allow women to speak in the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and then forbid them to minister in chapter 14? It certainly appears so. He begins in chapter 11 by telling people that they're set free from observing certain religious rituals, but he was dealing with significant problems in a church. In fact, those problems had to do with disruptions that were so disruptive that it was keeping people from experiencing genuine worship and love for God and genuine fellowship and loving relationships together. And so he begins by talking about a specific issue that's happening with some women in the church. And then he talks about how they are receiving communion together, that instead of being loving is disruptive. And then he talks about the gifts of the Spirit that are given to everyone, but how they're being practiced in ways that end up being confusing and counterproductive. And then he talks about a practice of dialogue and conversation that's happening in the church that is messing with their fellowship. You kind of get the picture from chapters 11 through 14 that he is dealing with a series, a bullet point list of specific problems that were interrupting oneness in relationship with God and with one another. And so we find this bookends dealing with women on the first and on the end of those series of problems. The first end, he was talking about what happens when people, women, were ministering with praying and with prophecy. Now, prayer and prophecy in a public worship service is generally vocal and audible. And so he was actually endorsing their praying and prophesying, but he was not endorsing the manner in which it was happening. And so he said to them in that setting, I don't want you to cut your hair. I don't want you to take off your shawl or your head covering. I don't want you to have uh, jewelry. I don't want you to draw attention to yourself in those ways. What was happening was that was as disruptive as the social distinctions they were making during communion, as the babbling that they were engaged in while trying to share gifts of the Spirit, and of other conversations that were happening on the side that were disruptive to the services. While affirming that women were going to be ministering in terms of praying and prophesying in public services, he talks to them about some particular cultural issues that were disruptive. Theologically, they were correct. They were completely free in Christ from taking off their head covering, which was a shawl, from cutting their hair if they wanted to, even though the Jewish tradition was that women would not do that. But what he said to them was, and I'm paraphrasing, it's an awful lot like taking off your wedding ring in public. You are presenting yourself as a married woman as though you were a single woman. And that is causing quite a cultural scandal in the church. What is she doing? In that cultural context, he says, please love one another, which is the spirit that he appeals through throughout the entire passage as well as scripture. In love to one another, don't let your liberty become something in this context that is a distraction from what God is really doing. So on one hand, he says, pray and prophesy. And on the other hand, he says, it's disgraceful for women to speak in the church. 
How do you reconcile the two? We get to the end of the series of problems that he's dealing with in chapter 14. And apparently what was happening, we don't know, it's speculation for everybody, but apparently what was occurring was that there were some small group discussions going on rather loudly during the big group worship service. And apparently there were some women who were particularly the violators of that. And to those women in that worship context, he says to them, it's disgraceful for you to talk the way that you are. In that context, be silent. Don't talk. Let others pray and prophesy. Conduct yourself in a way here that is not distracting. And so we look at the whole, and our sense of understanding is the affirmation of public sharing, women sharing in public, and for all of us behaving in a spirit of orderliness and love that does not distract others from their worship of God and with one another. Well, how about, and let's look at one other there. You'll notice the uh, question there on the bottom of your outline. And does Paul tell the women at Ephesus to limit their immodest clothing, braided hair, gold, pearls, extravagant gowns, and participating in public arguing that challenged Paul and Timothy's authoritative message? If you do your own reading later in the second chapter of 1 Timothy, you'll discover that like the church at Corinth, but in an abbreviated form, Paul is dealing with particular problems that are going on in the church at Ephesus. A church where he had served as pastor for three years, turned over primary leadership to that church and churches in the region to his protege, Timothy, both of them functioning with apostolic authority. And in that church, Paul had prophesied, you find it recorded in Acts chapter 20, that when he left the church at Ephesus, that self-appointed men would rise up within that church and they would challenge his authority and the authority of his message of the gospel of Christ. That had certainly happened in what became a mega church. And Paul deals with a variety of problems. He deals with the problem of anger that was apparently dividing their unity. Uh, He he was dealing with uh, a problem of contentiousness that was going on. There was uh, men were not participating in prayer as he wanted them to participate. They weren't praying the way that he was suggesting that they pray. And in that context, apparently along with some men who self-appointed with self-authority to withstand the message in Paul, there were some particular women that were particularly strident in that regard. He says in that context to Timothy, you may not, you cannot let those women take the authority of this message of Christ that I have proclaimed, that Apollos planted here, that Timothy, that you are charged with there to continue to keep this pure message of Jesus going forward, you cannot let those women with self-imposed authority take authority over this message. You must tell them to be silent. Now, what is the word silence and in submission that comes in that context? What does it mean? I'm not going to talk about the Greek words other than just briefly what they mean for us. It means to come to a place of peace, to not be contentious, to not join in the public arguments that were going on, to remain quiet, to be in subjection, the word that is used of the attitude of the learner, of the teacher, the spirit that all of us are to bring toward one another. Paul's specific goal was to keep certain women from using a self-taken authority when addressing Timothy or Paul himself. Naturally, Paul wouldn't have wanted any man to have taken self-assumed authority either. But that was not the situation that he was addressing with Timothy at that particular passage. What does Paul really think about women? Let me begin to conclude just with a couple of verses here. 
In Acts 18, there's the description of this married couple, Priscilla and Aquila, who had pastored uh, Apollos, who became a church founder and planter. And Bible passages imply that they taught him in a synagogue. In Acts chapter 21, four young women, sisters, are referred to as prophetesses. In Romans chapter 16, there's a list of things that Paul does. I'll mention three of them. He refers to Phoebe as a fellow minister at one of the churches. In chapter 3, Paul refers to Priscilla as a fellow worker or as a colleague of his. In Romans chapter 16, verse 7, Paul refers to a male apostle, Andronius, and a female apostle, Luna, as outstanding among the apostles. When we put the wide-angle lens to Scripture and start at the beginnings, it makes sense of where we conclude today with this beautiful passage where we started. And we ask this question finally. What was Paul's message then to the Galatians about redemption and restoration through faith in Christ? And how was that related to the equality of races, ethnicities, and genders? The Bible, we believe, is properly interpreted is always a Bible story of redemption. We are desperately separated from God by sin. And the big story is Jesus, God's Son, coming and dying in our place so that we could receive His forgiveness and life and the gift of His Spirit and become a follower of Christ and finding our lives hidden in Christ, being clothed with Christ, in standing before our Father justified, just as if I'd never sinned, family loved and pleasing. And the parallel story in the Bible is the story of, in addition to God's redemption, His restoration in our lives, restoring His original purposes, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's in the middle of that story that Paul says these beautiful words, that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. So Scripture is our foundation, and love is our spirit. We can get along with lots of people that believe different things that aren't essential and critical to the gospel. We will also hold to convictions. And one of our convictions is that God did not put things in his creative order that required that half of the population of his church could not serve in any spirit-empowered and called service or ministry. And we're a place that embraces, acknowledges, applauds, is thrilled about and believes that we're absolutely following the sure and certain word of God in our belief that what Paul said is theologically and practically true in Christ. There's neither male nor female. My question for you today is how does that challenge some of your attitudes? We live in an amazing community here in western Washington County with a burgeoning Hispanic population. 
I went to, had some services done uh, by a professional this week, and as the professional and an assistant were having a conversation, I was hearing in the tone and in some of the conclusions what I felt were racist kinds of attitudes. Where is it that God might be challenging us today in oneness? As it relates to what we think about rich people or what we think about poor people or what we think men have done that they shouldn't have or should do that they don't or what women have or haven't done or could do or should do that they don't, where is God challenges us today as he invites us to come into this beautiful place of oneness with God? And most importantly for some of us today, are you one with God? That's the big story of the Bible. Adam and Eve sinned, were driven from the garden until they could be prepared to come back into God's presence. The solution is a solution for sin that came in Jesus Christ. As we pray and as we conclude our time together, I'm going to include in that a prayer. I invite you to make it yours as well. Today, if you're here primarily to get right with God and to receive his great gift of forgiveness and redemption, let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us so much, so thoroughly and for believing in what you could do through your son Jesus so much that you sent him to die in our place. Today, Jesus, we admit, confess, gladly acknowledge that we've sinned, gone our own way, ended up with broken apart lives because of that, broken relationships. We come to you and acknowledge that. And receive today, Jesus, your gift of redemption, of forgiveness, We invite the Holy Spirit to come and live in us and to help us be followers of Christ every day. And now, Lord, our prayer is that everyone here that's made this decision, that, Lord, this week, that you would continue to renew our minds. Help us think as you think about being one. Renew our spirits, our souls, Lord, that have been broken and damaged. And renew our relationships and attitudes and behaviors toward others to treat one another with the same honor and respect and equality that you have designed and that you're restoring us toward. And would you give us that bond that brings us all together. It's the bond of love and peace so that we can hold to firm convictions and love living them out and be generous hearted toward others that may have come toward other conclusions as well. But in the meantime, Lord, you tell us that whatever is not of faith is sin and we move forward happily and boldly in faith and ask that you guide us and lead us into the beautiful future that you have for this church and these people. In Jesus' name, amen.